There we go. And I did do it. Okay, I didn't do I didn't do that well. Yeah, let him who boasts like he knows something. First Corinthians eight two. I violated that. Okay, Psalm sixteen. The heading is called uh, "Miktam of David," and the Psalm says, "New American Standard Bible: Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you." I said to the Lord, You are my God. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor shall I take their names up on my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now I gave you a simple outline on the board. I do not know if this is the best way. I do think these verses are probably the best way to divide it. Did I give it the best heading? I'm not sure. But I stated verses 1 through 4. I have no good but you, David affirms. Then the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And in verses 6 or 7 through 11, the Lord is at my right hand and I will not be moved like I said there may be better ways to title that but I've tried to take titles that are basically from the text or summing up the text couple of things it's said to be a mictum what does that mean we don't exactly know for sure uh, the Greek version had inscription. Uh, the Greek word meant inscription instead of this. But that title, that title which is used in that passage, is used in each of the Psalms between Psalms 56 to 60. That's interesting. Six. Titles of six psalms, 16 and then 56 through 60. And it says, a mictum of David. So if you just look at this title, and I recognize that the phrase that's used at the beginning, uh, talking about relationship to David, could mean 
it was written for him. But the New Testament touches upon this subject. And the New Testament quotes this psalm and attributes it to David in Acts 2 verse 25, Acts 2 verse 29. It is quoted and attributed to David. And what is disturbing to me is how many commentaries that are supposed to be conservative talk about authorship and do not even take that into consideration. They say, well, this was written by Levites. This was written by priests. What does the inspired preacher of the New Testament say? Maybe that means more than simply what we can figure out about the psalm. But in this particular psalm, David is truly centering his focus on God. He is centering his focus on God. And I hope that we are able to demonstrate that clearly. He begins verse 1 by saying, preserve me. And that word can be preserve, it can be guard, it can be keep. Preserve me, guard me, keep me, O God, for I have taken refuge in you. Many times in the Psalms, David makes that prayer to preserve me, keep me. This is the same word used, for example, in Psalm 17, in verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Same word used here in 16.1. Preserve me, O God. He begs God to preserve him because I have taken refuge in you. And we see that idea frequently in the Psalms that we've already discussed. To take refuge in God. To run for, to Him for shelter, for hiding. To run to Him for safety in time of storm. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. However you want to characterize this psalm. Some say a psalm of trust. Some say a psalm of confidence. But however you want to characterize it, this is really the only request he makes in verse 1. And it is really difficult to try to determine the circumstance from that verse because it's pretty generic. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Now, there are some points of verses 2 and 3 that are difficult to translate. I'm not going to go into all the various possibilities, but state what I believe uh, is the right answer and proceed in our interpretation from it. But I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And by the way, look at that word Lord really closely. Do you notice that the first instance of the word Lord, the word Lord is all capitals. The second, it is not. When a word is Lord in all capitals, what does that indicate? What's that? Jehovah or Yahweh is the Hebrew term behind it. And then the second term is another word for Lord, Adonai. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. He's acknowledging his devotion to him, his commitment to him. And he says, I have no good besides you. The source of every good thing you have and I have is God. The Psalms say that. 
all of Scripture says that. That the Lord is the source of our good. He is the one who blesses us with with all things. Uh, For example, in Psalm, a similar idea in Psalm 34.10, it says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. That was Psalm 34 and verse 10. And you know what James 1 verse 17 says, that all gifts, all good and perfect gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no very variation or uh, turning shadow. I have no good but you. Words that each of us can make our own in prayer. In verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. I think he's making a contrast in verse 3 between the saints and verse 4 between those who serve another God. And while he rejoices in the saints, in verse 4, he talks about the sorrows of those who serve other gods. One of the things we try to do as we look through the Psalms is to see some links, some connections between the Psalms we previously looked at. Sometimes it's vocabulary, and we'll see that later tonight. Sometimes it's simply the ideas expressed. For example, in verse 4, Psalm 15, verse 4. Psalm 15, 4, the Bible described that man who can abide in God's tent and dwell on his holy hill, it described him as one in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. In his eyes a reprobate is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He honors those who fear the Lord. I think verse 16.3 say the same thing. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. He knows that all good is from God and He delights in the people of God. He delights in the saints of God. But those who seek other paths to find meaning in life, to find the way in life, those who follow other gods, their sorrows are going to be increased. Their sorrows are going to be multiplied. Now, if you look closely at your text in verse 4, in verse 4, what do you notice about the word God? And I recognize your translations may differ some here, but what do you notice there, Sarah? It's in italics, which indicates that it's It's not in the original text. And what the text actually says is uh, the sorrows of those who bartered for another will be multiplied. Is God implied in that? Is that correct to insert that particular term? I kind of think yes, because the end of the verse, it talks about pouring out drink offerings. So it seems like whatever he is doing here uh, or whatever these people are doing and he affirms he will not do, it deals with serving another God. And he is not going to make offerings to these gods and he is not going to take their names upon his lips. He's not even going to utter 
their names. Uh, in Exodus 23, Exodus 23, verse 13, the Bible said, Now concerning everything I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. That was Exodus 23. And verse 13, Hosea 2, verse 17, God was going to take the name of foreign gods away from their mouth. And so this passage, he recognizes that God is his refuge. He calls upon God to protect him. He says, you are my Lord. I have no good but you. I rejoice in the saints. I rejoice in the saints. And in verse 4, he says, those who barter for another God, uh, they will only increase their troubles. I think of Jonah 2.8 when I read this, which says that those um, that those who follow other gods they're, uh, forsake their own faithfulness is the way the text says it. Any questions you have right there? Verses 1-4. through four. Any ideas? Okay, five and six. And let me ask you about this language here. What books does it remind you of? The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You you support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Portion, lot, lines, heritage. Does it remind you of any particular section of the Bible? David, you? Uh, Joshua talks about... Joshua... Yeah, that's right. Joshua does. And sometimes other passages do uh, as well but it's talking about they're taking the inheritance in the land and the book of Joshua is really front and center in this. John? It, it also lines up with what's said about the Levites and priests in Numbers yes. 18. Yes, Numbers 18 verse 20 is one passage which tells us that the priest is not given an inheritance among... The the Levites are not given an inheritance, but they have cities scattered throughout. The Lord is their portion. Now, young people, if um, if you've tried to do the map of the tribes, and that's a good thing to be able to do, kind of say where these tribes tribes fit, um, if you've ever done that, you know Levite... Levi doesn't have an inheritance there. Levi doesn't have just one tribal allotment. And the Bible says that they didn't have an inheritance because the Lord is their portion. The Lord is their portion. The Lord is their inheritance. Maybe we don't appreciate that like we should. As one writer said that in the ancient world, land was the ability to get wealth, to generate wealth, to pass it on from generation to generation. 
here's a tribe that's told you're not going to get land like that. Your portion, your inheritance is the Lord. He takes away the thing that so many in the ancient world would have leaned on for wealth to give them the greatest gift of all. God Himself. And there are many passages, and I'll try to send these notes out to you later. Many passages I'll have down besides Numbers 18.20. And a lot of them deal with what John said with the priests and the Levites. But sometimes that same language is used of all Israel. Like when David said they divide the land. But look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. But God, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is our portion. He is our inheritance. He is our heritage. But I'll tell you something else that's fascinating when you talk about these phrases. Whether this be the Lord being the portion, the inheritance of the tribes of tribe of Levi and the priest, or all Israel, all God's people. In, in Deuteronomy 32 verse 9... Listen to this. The Lord's portion is His people. And Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. What is God's portion? What is God's inheritance? We are. He is ours and we are His. That covenant language. I will be their God and they will be my people. Which in many ways sums up the whole biblical story. The Lord is our portion. And we are His portion. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in beautiful and pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. He rejoices in His inheritance. And He would not trade this portion, this inheritance, for any other. Brad? We uh, often sing that song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord, which comes from, you know, Lamentations 3. You know, in the midst of that groaning, again, he uses that same phrase, the Lord is uh, my portion. Yes. And my cup, doesn't it? Does it say cup too? The Lord is my Um, portion in my... Not in that immediate sense. Okay. Okay. Why do you think he mentions... Uh, inheritance, cup, and lot. Is he trying to say the same thing with different words, or is he trying to trying to emphasize different ideas? I, I think they're basically the same. There may be there may be shades of difference there. There may be shades. Of, you know, one writer stated that in two thirds of these cases of parallelism, there's some kind of movement or stretching of the concept. That is his subjective take on it but in a lot of cases I think it's indisputable so I wouldn't deny there's some stretching or expanding of the idea 
But I think that's it. Brad, what what, what is it? I'm coming back to it. The Lord is my portion and my... Says my soul. Says my soul. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay, therefore I will hope in Him. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I, I thought... I'm reading the words of this verse into that song. What, what is that idea? It's when he says, my cup. My cup. I think our cup, in this sense, is kind of like a reward. And this can be for wicked people, or this can be for righteous people. For example, if you look back in Psalm 11... Psalm 11, verse 6. Psalm eleven six. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So the cup of the wicked is not one that you want to drink. Fire, brimstone, and burning wind are the portion of their cup. But... For the righteous, in Psalm 23, in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my cup with oil. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And this is the idea of blessings. But the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my cup. You support my lot. You support this this uh, the lot that is cast and that provides me with the land that I'll pass down. You are uh, my heritage. All of these ways to praise, to give Him thanks, to glorify Him. In verse in verse seven, He says, "I will bless the Lord who has counseled me." Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Now, that word counseled is a verb form. The Lord has counseled me. But you remember how Psalms open? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It's a noun form of the same word. Blessed is a person that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but putting this together... I bless the Lord who has counseled me. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the Lord. Psalm 1 states that he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. I'll bless the Lord who's counseled me. And my mind instructs me in the night. His mind instructing him is not simply running free and thinking of everything, but apparently his mind is based on what the Lord has said to him, what the Lord has counseled him. Again, Psalm 73 is a powerful statement in verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Psalm 73 verse 24. We may have reason to revisit that. But I've set the Lord in verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Now, now that is a good That is a good passage to seek to live. I have set the Lord before me. In verse 8, He is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. In Psalm 16, the Bible talks about the Lord being at our right hand. In verse 8, verse 11, we'll talk about God's right hand. So He is at our right hand. And in His right hand, 
we will see that there are pleasures forevermore. But because He is at my right hand, because He's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. For God to be at our right hand may mean He is always there to help. He is ready to sustain us. He is quick to... He is quick to strengthen us in times of problem. Uh, he lifts us up when we fall. In Psalm 73, and I've referenced this about four times tonight already. Psalm 73, 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. 73, 23. God's picked him up, lifted him up. You've taken hold of my right hand. And because God's taken hold of my right hand, I will not be shaken. Go back to 15.5. After 15.5 talked about what characterizes the one who can abide in God's holy hill, it says in verse 5, He who does these things will never be shaken. If we set the Lord always before our face, He will never be shaken. Excuse me, we will never be shaken. And in verse 9, he says, My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. We're going to see that he's contemplating death here. And even in the face of death, he talks about gladness, rejoicing, and dwelling securely. My heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely. And that word dwell was used in 15.1 when it asked, who may dwell on God's holy hill? And here he says, I dwell in security. I dwell securely because I have fixed my hope on Him. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh will dwell securely. For you have not... You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures evermore. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. One writer said this, David knows, as all saints have known, that God did not establish His covenant with us to provide for us and guide us throughout life only to abandon us at the moment of our greatest need, death. If you can look back on your life and see where God was guiding you, directing you, and helping you, and upholding you, if you can look on your life and see this, you know that in your greatest hour, He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now look at Psalm 49. Just a moment. Psalm 49, a couple of verses really stand out that I want to call attention to. One is verse 9. Let's get a little kind of context of verse 9. Verse 6, beginning, Psalm 49, verse 6. Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For his for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Now, Psalm 16.10 talked about your Holy One will not undergo decay. What does it mean to undergo decay or to not undergo decay in Psalm 49.9? It means to live eternally. Do you see that? That he should not, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. So to live eternally is what it means to not undergo decay. Now look at Psalm 49 verse 15. Look at 14 and 15. As sheep, this is talking about the wicked here. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. For the righteous, the Lord is their shepherd. For the wicked, death will be their shepherd. We pick up reading. The upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me, Selah. The Lord will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In verse 11, you'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those who seek for other gods in verse 4 have only multiplied their sorrows. But for those who seek the true Lord in His right hand are pleasures evermore. He is the one who can satisfy our souls. He is the one that can make us happy. When you think about that statement that some have made in the past few years, and the Bible's just about us being happy. I mean, it's, it's foolishness if you just take this earthly life. But there's a certain sense in which that's true. God does want us to be happy eternally. That happiness may lead through a path of discipline and fellowship and even suffering. But in His right hand are pleasures evermore.
May God help us to remember that when things are difficult. Now, what questions or ideas do you have right there? Sarah? So in verse 9, what is meant by my glory? Okay. There's a question here as to what that means. Um, It's my heart is glad... Um, my tongue rejoices um, and so it, it's it's literally by glory rejoices and some have taken that to be a particular part uh, like the, the NIV I believe translates that tongue there are previous there are previous mentions of glory in three three. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. There, the psalmist is glorying in God. Uh, then there's a reference to glory in four two. How long will you turn my glory into shame or reproach? Uh, it's translated honor there in the New American Standard, Psalm four two. That may be things that cause me glory, things that cause me rejoicing. If that's what it's referencing. In Psalm 7, 5, the term is used. They want to lay my glory in the dust. The, the, my glory could be things in which a person rejoices, in which a person celebrates, uh, which the things that he holds most dear. And I do think in Psalm 3.3, and here in this Psalm, Psalm 16, that he finds his greatest glory in God. But somehow this is his expression of how, uh, of how he rejoices because um, he is serving a God who is able to deliver. don't know if I'm summing that up well, but I think all of that is the concept, Sarah. What's the Hebrew word? It's kavod, is glory. And I think it is in, 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 it's the word used in all those passages. Any, any other thoughts? Okay, if no other thoughts, let me just ask you this. As I'm talking about how Jesus fulfills... Psalm 16. Where would you think I'd go? Okay. Heard a rumbling in the crowd? Acts. Acts. Very good. What we're going to do tonight, I'm not going to try to go back through every specific point and give you five ways or ten ways Jesus fulfills. Psalm 16. We're going to just focus on these on a couple of passages in the New Testament. Because this is a psalm that is quoted on more than one occasion and applied to Jesus. When we are talking in all of the psalms and how they point to Jesus and how they are fulfilled in Jesus, we are leaning on psalms like Psalm 16 which are clearly quoted in the New Testament, we're seeing how the New Testament uses Psalm 16. 
And then we're trying to draw a conclusion how we can use other psalms, even ones that aren't specifically quoted. And so in some of these psalms, though we could make many applications, no doubt, we want to stress particularly what is stated in those quotations. Now, I want you to notice something about Psalm 16. Me, my, I. Psalm of David, he uses the term me in all of these verses. He uses the term my. All of these times. He uses the term I quite frequently as well. Why do I mention that? This psalm is pretty, I would say that all those references would make this psalm pretty intensely personal, wouldn't you? And I don't think David is writing just about someone else. He's writing about his experiences, his trust, his confidence. He is pouring out his heart and his soul and his life. In prayer to God. So David is speaking of his experiences. But I would also say that that David is not speaking exclusively of his experiences. Did you catch that difference? He's speaking of his experiences. He's speaking of things he lived. And yet these words are exhausted in his experiences. These words point to something greater than himself. Now look at Acts 2. Acts 2. I think I can say this with great confidence because I think this is what the New Testament says. In Acts 2, the Bible says that Peter begins to preach and he talked about how you by wicked hands nailed Jesus to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, for it was impossible for death to hold him in his power. And in verse 25, for David says of him, David says of him, did David write it? David's mentioned in 25, 29, verse 34. He's mentioned three times in this next section. David says of him, and he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you have not... You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 16, as we stated. If there are places, and there are a couple, that it differs from our text in Psalm 16, he quotes from the Septuagint, it seems. For example, uh, he talks about, um, well, there are a couple of places that um, he, he seems to quote from the Septuagint. 
And he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He quotes this in 25 through 28. Listen to what he says about it. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David died and we know where he's buried. We know where he's buried. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Who is buried in David's tomb? I had a fifth grade teacher who asked us, who is buried in Grant's tomb? And about half the students gave other answers before I raised my hand and said, Grant? In fairness, I think some students thought it was a trick question. I think they did. But he also one time asked when the War of 1812 was. And our class struggled with that. Maybe it was our class's fault. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Grant. Who's buried in David's tomb? David. And they knew here a thousand years later where he was buried. Who is buried in Jesus' tomb? Nobody. No one. Do you know of all the places in the Holy Land that have become relics and all the people, the great people that have died, that they take you on tours and they say, this is where their body lays. There's no place like that associated with Jesus' burial. I mean, there's some that speculate, but as far as nobody claims, his body's right right here. Those words, you will not allow my Holy One to undergo decay, in verse 31, they're quoted again. And it says, David being a prophet, verse 30, knew that God had sworn an oath to his descendants to sit one of them upon the throne. That's a quote from Psalm, a reference to Psalm 132, verse 11. It's because he was a prophet, he knew some things that other people didn't. Prophets didn't know everything and sometimes searched their own writings. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. But they knew some things others didn't. And he knew that God had promised He would raise up one of His descendants to sit upon this throne. And He was speaking of the resurrection of Christ, that He neither abandoned His soul to Hades nor His flesh suffered decay. And God has raised Him from the dead and exalted Him to His right hand, verse 33 says. Verse 34 and 35, quote Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet. Those words weren't fulfilled in David either. Those words of Psalm 110 
and 16 were fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was the one who did not undergo decay. Jesus was the one who did not, was not abandoned to Hades. So Acts 2 quotes these words of David. And by the way, look at what it says about Davidic authorship. The assumption is that David wrote these Psalms, that David wrote words that would be fulfilled in him and in the Messiah who would come from his line. And he quotes these words and says, these words didn't come true of David, they came true of Jesus. Look at Acts 13. Acts 2 is Peter's longest sermon. Peter's longest recorded sermon is Acts 2. Not very long, but still his longest recorded sermon. Paul's longest recorded sermon is Acts 13. But in Acts 2, you see Psalm 16 quoted. In Acts 13, we're going to see Psalm 16 quoted. Let's start at verse 33. God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7, He said, God raised up Jesus just like that psalm says. In verse 34, As for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Reference to Isaiah 55.3. Now look at verse 35. Therefore He also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. To quote from Psalm 16.10. Verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised from the dead did not undergo decay. The key idea in these verses is the idea of undergoing decay. It is used in 13.35, in 36, in 37. In 35, the promise is quoted from Psalm 16.10. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You won't allow that to happen. David, the one who spoke these words in verse 36, served his own generation. He fell asleep. He died. He did undergo decay. But the one God raised up did not undergo decay. His body did not undergo decay. He was raised up the third day. These psalms and these promises may have referred to David's experience as he speaks in first person, in a deeply personal way. He speaks and these psalms had some fulfillment in his life, but in the deepest and richest sense, they are not fulfilled in David. They are fulfilled in Jesus. And because of Jesus... 
David will ultimately be raised. And all those who followed him in the Old Testament will be raised. Because of Jesus, all those who put their trust in him today will be raised. In his presence, there will be fullness of joy. In his presence, there will be pleasures forevermore. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The strength of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Any thoughts right there? Any questions? This is one of those Psalms, like I stated, that we want to see how the New Testament uses it, which may give us insight into the how to use other Old Testament Psalms that are not specifically quoted in the New Testament.